My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds I keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, it is such a huge honor for me to have Dana Dahl here with me, and she is a therapist. And gosh, let's see, we met about five and a half years ago. We sure did, yeah. When Dana took my call Mm -hmm. uh, when Will was in crisis. Absolutely. And so to have her here is such an honor, and she knows so much about us, but that's not actually what we're going to talk about today. You guys have already heard our story. I want Dana to help us as parents know what to do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if and when and before we need to know, because every parent to date that I have interviewed Mm -hmm. for the podcast has said, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to call. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we need more resources and I can't think of anyone better Mm -hmm. to share some of those resources with us. So Dana, thanks again for being here. Oh, Susie, thank you so much for having me. I am so honored and privileged to be with you. Um, It's been great to be able to walk your journey with you. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've shared your story and there's been significant ups and downs, um, but to be able to sit here with you on this side of things Mm -hmm. is such a privilege and I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. Would you first just tell the listeners what your accreditations are? I know there are various um, types of accrediting bodies for therapists, counselors. So Mm -hmm. if you would just tell us about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important question. Um, And I jokingly refer to alphabet soup sometimes (laughs) behind my name. Um, Basically, for myself, um, I'm a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist and a licensed clinical professional counselor. And what that means is I have worked to reach the highest level of licensure as a marriage and family therapist and a professional counselor in the state of Kansas. And every state has a little bit different um, requirements and credentialing and that sort of thing. So it doesn't look the same from state to state, uh, but in Kansas, there are actually several levels of licensure, and this for marriage and family therapists and for professional counselors, social work slightly different. Uh, but when you graduate from a master's in counseling program or a master's with your marriage and family degree, then you apply for licensure, and that's the first level. Okay. And then you work for a few years through some practice hours. When I say practice hours, they're actually clinical hours. Right. You're working with real clients, but you're under supervision, okay. and that supervision supervisor is helping just give quality control for your work, making sure that you're learning and growing and developing still professionally and personally. Uh, And then after you've accumulated the required number of hours, then you're eligible for that next level of licensure. And once you reach the clinical level, then you're allowed to practice independently without a supervisor. Okay. So I appreciate that clarification because I think that that's one of the many things that we don't know Mm -hmm. what to look for. Absolutely. Perhaps you could give the listeners some suggestions Mm -hmm. on no matter where they live, 
what to look for sure. when they're looking for someone to talk to or their mm -hmm. child. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things to keep in mind is what type of service are you looking for? So um, depending on the different training and licensure, a clinician is going to be able to provide different services. So for example, a psychiatrist is the mental health professional that is a, an MD. So they actually have a medical degree. They and um, psychiatric nurse practitioners are the only ones who are able to prescribe medication. So that would be a psychiatrist. A psychologist is trained specifically in testing. So they can also, depending on their training, do counseling and provide clinical services in that realm, therapy services, but they also have the specialized training to do like intelligence testing, testing for ADHD, learning disabilities, uh, other um, disorders and diagnoses and that sort of thing. So that would be psychologists. Social workers in their training have a lot of emphasis on social justice uh, and do a lot of work facilitating their clients being able to get services that they need in the community. Marriage and family therapists focus a lot more on systems work. So looking at an individual client, but in the context of their family system, their work system, their social system, their uh, religious system, and, and looking at how they impact their system, but also how their system impacts them. Professional counseling has a lot of emphasis on working with individuals, but also they do couples work and family work as well. Uh, but there's also this focus on career counseling um, as well as professional development that would be, I would say, more unique to the professional counseling side of things. So again, depending on what the client is needing as far as specific types of services, that's kind of the, the lanes that we stay in, so to speak. That was so well described, thank you, because I think that's very clarifying and I know a lot of times in the mental health journey, it's confusing. Do I need a psychiatrist? Mm -hmm. Well, how come my psychiatrist doesn't really talk to me? He, sure. he or she just mm -hmm. gives me medication. Mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, yeah. that I think really will help listeners understand that mm -hmm it's often a, an entire team approach. Yeah, absolutely. And and I do want to be clear, like all of those professionals can provide therapy when we think, so we're talking about anxiety disorders, um, eating disorders, substance use, uh, mood disorders, that sort of thing. All of those practitioners would be able to address those. But if someone's looking for something very specific like medication or testing, that sort of thing, it's important to know the differences. I think the other thing to keep in mind is we have to be good uh, consumer consumers. Mm of our mental health uh, services. When you think about going in for uh, surgery, say mm -hmm. you're going in for cardiac surgery or something like that, you're going to want to ask the, the surgeon, how many of this type of surgery have you done? <laughs> right. um, and, and we do the same thing when we're buying a car. We want to research, you know, what, what's this make and model? What, what are the reviews? What warranties do they have? That sort of thing. We need to do the same thing with our mental health services as well. And mm. it's important to note that no one clinician can be the right fit for every single client. That's why there's a lot of different types of mental health professionals. That's why there's a lot of us out there. Uh, and so when someone is looking for a counselor or a mental health practitioner, it's important to ask questions. It's important to give them um, a try. I oftentimes will say to clients who aren't quite sure, they're a little hesitant, I say, give me three sessions. Uh, if you'll be willing to meet with me three times, and at the end of that third session, we'll have a conversation see how those sessions have gone for you. Are we working on things that are helpful and important to you? Do we seem like a good fit personality wise? Do you like the environment that you're in? Because um, all those things are important. And so again, being good consumers is really necessary. That I like that three session mm -hmm. trial mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I know 
you can't tell in a first session. Sure. Yeah. And so three, that's a really good kind of rule of thumb mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. For, for people to have. I agree with you. We need to be good consumers. Mm-hmm. Now, what about when you get the call and the parent is calling because they have a, a crisis on their hands? Mm-hmm. Like when we called you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <darn> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So for me, and I'm just going to speak for me personally. Right. Um, every clinician does things just a little bit differently because, first of all, we're trained differently. Secondly, we're different people. We have different personalities and different ways. Of, of approaching the work that we do. Uh, but if a person calls, a parent calls, and they say, my child is in crisis, I'm going to try and get as much information about the current situation so that I can be thinking about, am I a good fit for this mm. person? Uh, is the level of care that I can provide adequate for what they're describing? Or do they need a different type of professional? Or do they need a different level of care? So it's on me at that point as the professional to be asking some good questions to figure out, is, is it even worth them scheduling an mm. appointment? with me or do I need to send them in a little bit different direction and sometimes even for me I don't know that right up front and so I try to always be candid with potential clients and say you know what this is something that I think I might be a good fit for Uh, let's get together let's have a conversation I'll get a little bit more detail and then we can decide together whether I'm going to be a good fit that's very good you brought something up about you know staying in your lane or if this is Mm -hmm. a good fit for you That takes me to thinking about times when I've had parents call me, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I'm just a mom, to be clear. Mm -hmm. I don't have alphabet soup after my name. (laughs) (laughs) I have just a mom. But when there have been some crises, and Mm -hmm. I, as a a parent, Mm -hmm. have told another parent, you know, I think you need to take your child to the emergency Mm -hmm. room. This Mm -hmm. is at a critical, Mm -hmm. life-threatening time let's just jump into that when do you what's the guidelines for when that's Mm -hmm. necessary sure absolutely well i think there's two different uh, scenarios that we could encounter here one the one that you're describing would be someone who like clearly this is a crisis the criteria that i use in that is is the child or the adolescent saying that they are unsafe with themselves, And do the parents feel like they can keep the child safe in whatever context they're in? Um, so if the answer is like, yes, my child is saying that they're safe, um, or yes, I think that even if the child's not able to be safe by themselves, I can be with them, we can... Uh, limit access to means. So I, I'm pretty confident that I, as the parent, can keep them safe. Then we probably just need to schedule a pretty quick intake, but it's not necessarily an ER trip at that point. Okay. Um, if someone is saying, if the child or adolescent is saying, like, I have thoughts of suicide, I have a plan, and I have really high intent, and the parents are saying, given our environment and my perceived skill in this situation, I don't know that I can keep them safe that would be an opportunity to go to the emergency room at that point. And and again, that's when we rely on professionals to mm-hmm. do their job, to do a good job of screening, um, to do a good job of asking questions and assessing the situation and then making a determination. Is this a situation where the child or adolescent needs to be inpatient? Or is this a situation where, again, we just need to get a pretty quick intake with an outpatient therapist? Okay. that's That's very helpful. And I think, too, I've had parents on the podcast and then parents who are, have not been on the podcast talk to me about, so I took the child to you know XYZ sure. emergency mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. It was determined that, yes, this child does need help. We do not provide that. Mm-hmm. Le- you know that kind of help mm-hmm. because we don't have a, a an adolescent 
unit. Yep, sure. Uh, so mm-hmm. you need to go to ABC Hospital, mm-hmm. you know, down the road. And mm-hmm. I think that that's not an uncommon occurrence. You're right. Yep, absolutely. And basically what that that situation is, is first hospital trying mm-hmm. to make sure that patient is getting the most effective and efficient care that they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that in that situation, sometimes it's really overwhelming for the parents and can be also for the child or the adolescent. And at the same time, it's actually the professionals trying to make sure that they're getting really good care. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Because in most communities, there are not a significant number of places that mm-hmm. facilities that have inpatient psychiatric units for those who are under 18. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a challenge, especially for more rural areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in the Kansas City area, we're fortunate. We actually have several uh, really good programs for adolescents when it comes to inpatient. Uh, but I know that in other areas, other counties of Kansas or Missouri and, and other areas in the nation, it's not, not as accessible. Right. I mean, I think some people might have to drive hours mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to find a place for their child, yeah, which is, yeah. it, that just complicates things mm-hmm, even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely does. Mm-hmm. And I've interviewed parents who have said um, that have taken a child to an inpatient psych unit mm-hmm. and they have told me, and I just am getting chills even thinking about it, the hardest part of the journey was leaving walking that child mm-hmm. and walking away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so imagine if it's two, three, four hours away mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. have to go to work tomorrow and yep. you can't you know, get back to check on the child. I don't yeah. know. I think that would be really, really hard. Yeah, it is. It's a very painful experience. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it could potentially save the child's life. There you go. And so if, if we have to weigh the two, the pain of having to leave your child and walking away and, and essentially leaving your child in the care of complete strangers right. or having to plan a funeral, mm-hmm. it's a lot better to have to walk away and leave them in the care of strangers at that point. That is so important to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to really get across that you just don't want to take the chance. Right. Yeah. I'd rather take somebody to the emergency room mm-hmm. and be told, uh, you know, you're not having a heart attack. It's mm-hmm. heartburn. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Than mm-hmm. to say, oh, you know, I really don't think you're having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. take some tumps. You'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> and then boom. Oh, actually, that was a heart mm-hmm. attack. So say, yeah. I mean, and same thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Life-threatening, Absolutely. potentially life-threatening condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I'll just interject here, Susie. One of the things that I think is so helpful about your podcast is bringing attention to this so that parents are aware and parents can recognize there are ways for them to get support for themselves. Mm-hmm. Because if parents are in a situation where they do have to admit their child and they do have to walk away and resume work the next day or care for younger siblings or other obligations. So important for parents to have good care and support around themselves as well. Their kiddo is going to be taken care of in whatever environment they're in. They need to also be taken care of. That is so true because mm-hmm. I think that's the last thing we think of. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what does mm-hmm. that look like? What mm. what suggestions do you have for that? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> and I wish there was like a checklist. Yeah, right. um, and unfortunately, there's not. So it's, it's sometimes a matter of trial and error of experimenting. Like, what is it that I need in this moment? And, and sometimes it's I need to be around people. Sometimes it's I need to take a nap. Sometimes it's something completely different. Um, I like to tell people when it comes 
comes to self-care, your self-care doesn't have to make sense to anybody but yourself as long as it meets two criteria. First, it has to be truly safe and healthy for yourself. And second, it can't impinge on the rights or safety of other people. And as long as it meets those two criteria, self-care can look like whatever it needs to look like. Those are great guidelines because I'm thinking through some self-care things that maybe I have done in the past that maybe wouldn't have fit uh, sure. that number yep. one. We're all and, guilty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> talked to lots of parents who would probably agree with their own mm-hmm. um, types of self-care, but yeah. that's great. Let's kind of switch gears a little bit mm-hmm. and just talk about what is going on with this mental health crisis amongst Mm-hmm. You know, our children, our youth, our, you know, early 20-somethings, what has happened? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> and quite honestly, the truthful answer is we don't fully know yet. Um, there's so much about the pandemic that we're still coming to understand as far as the effects and impact that it's had on people in general, uh, but especially our children and our adolescents and young adults. Uh, and so even the the fact that the Surgeon General issued an advisory in 2021 indicates this is a big deal because uh, those advisories are, are saved for things that that warrant urgent attention. Right. Um, but we, we really don't know. Uh, nationally, we're seeing increased reports of sadness or hopelessness, the sense of powerlessness. Uh, we're seeing increased numbers of emergency department visits for things like depression and anxiety and other behavioral health difficulties. And we're also seeing increased rates of suicidal thoughts, plans, and unfortunately completions and deaths by suicide. And so we know that it's had an impact. Mm -hmm. We just don't fully know what that's going to look like yet. And we probably won't for a while, right? I'm I'm guessing, I am not an expert in this area. I'm guessing probably not for another generation until we see the impact of what's happened to these kids and these adolescents as they go into yeah. into adulthood, have relationships, have families, that mm. sort of thing. Yes. Oh, and that, I mean, you say that and I just think, oh, that breaks my heart. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, it really emphasizes the importance of, of the work that you're doing and the work that mental health professionals are doing to make sure that we continue to have these conversations. Yes. And as I have said a bazillion times, the kids are doing a pretty darn good job talking about yeah, it. Yeah, they are. It's yep. mm-hmm. our generations, mm-hmm. that our generation mm-hmm. and the one ahead of us, mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. the ones who are, who are lagging. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really important, too, just considering adolescent development, that the adults are getting involved, not only because we need to be involved in the conversation, but we need to be involved in helping adolescents as their brains are developing mm-hmm. to be wise consumers of the information that's out there, uh, to develop that critical thinking ability. We're not just born with that. Um, To develop problem-solving skills and be able to think through scenarios and situations, and that's the role of the adults. Mm -hmm. And so not only do we as adults need to be comfortable talking about mental health issues, but we also need to be able to empower these children and adolescents to not just survive as adults, but to be able to thrive in whatever context they're in. What would you tell parents that are some things that they should look for in their kids Mm -hmm. if, you know, to see if there's something going on mental health wise if if their kids aren't talking to them about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important for us to look at behavioral changes, but not to take any one 
thing in isolation. So everybody has a bad day. Everybody from time to time has a bad week. Sure. And, and that's not necessarily a sign that, oh, something's really significantly wrong with my child's mental health. But I think parents have to be in tune with their kiddos. And one of the things when I think about adolescent development um, is that peers become so much more important. And I oftentimes hear parents talk about disengaging in some way, not, not because they're bad parents, not because they don't care, but it's like, oh, my child is so much more involved with their peers are so much more involved with their activities. There's just not time for me to be as engaged with them. Or I've even heard parents say, well, my, my kiddo doesn't want me to be a part of their life right now. And even if that's the message that the adolescent is communicating, because oftentimes that's what they're yes. saying, mm-hmm. um, it's still so important for parents to be involved with and engaged. It just has to change. That, that connectedness, that engagement has to morph and change as the child is developing. Uh, so thinking about things like, is my child still um, showing interest in the things that they're they're interested in? Now, caveat to that, interests change. Sure. And it's okay if one day my kiddo is, well, maybe not one day, but for one season, my kiddo is interested in this, and then suddenly their, their interests change. Okay. But what we want to have parents do is be curious about that, engage in a conversation about that. Um, things like changing um, behavioral patterns. You know, if my kiddo is typically very social and outgoing and now they're seemingly more introverted or wanting to withdraw more often, be curious about that. And when I say be curious, I also want to encourage parents to be curious without judgment. Uh, sometimes when parents will ask questions, they come into it with kind of an agenda. And adolescents have great BS radars. Yes, they do. <laughs> and so if a parent comes into a conversation with an agenda, um, the adolescent is going to pick up on that. And yeah. so for parents to genuinely approach a conversation with their child or their teenager with curiosity, I genuinely want to know your experience. And then empathy, I genuinely want to understand your experience. Um, so I kind of got off track there a little bit, but no, but again, good. just to encourage parents that as you're noticing behavioral changes, changes in appetite, changes in um, eating patterns, changes in sleeping patterns, changes in social interactional patterns, genuinely be curious about those things um, and, and ask your child. Because it's sometimes so hard to tell mm-hmm. the difference between, air quotes, normal teenage mm-hmm, behavior mm-hmm. Yep, yep. and what is a problem. Yep. And I talk about that all the time because Will is our third child. We had parented teenagers before. This was mm-hmm. not our first rodeo. And yet we missed it. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a really challenging thing. Is this just my kiddo being an angsty teenager? Right. Uh, or is this something that actually needs clinical attention? And so some of the criteria that I give parents is the concerning behavior, first of all, preventing the, your child from functioning successfully in their environments, whether it's school, church, social, sports, whatever those environments are. Second, is the problem behavior or concerning behavior interfering with your child's ability to complete their necessary tasks? Things like personal hygiene, chores at home, schoolwork, if they have a job, are they able to, to still do their, their job successfully? And then number three, is the concerning behavior creating relational distress for the child, either with families, peers, other adults in their lives, that sort of thing? Um, and if they say yes to those three things, then that's probably a good indicator that it's time to get a professional involved. If they're not sure, it never hurts to ask. It never hurts to call and say, 
hey, this is what we're facing. Professional, what do you think? Uh, and hopefully the professional is going to give them a pretty candid answer of like, I think this sounds like maybe just an angsty teenager or no, this sounds like maybe you're seeing enough concerning information that maybe it would be good for us to meet. Or it might be a third option of, I'm not really sure. Would you be willing or interested in scheduling an appointment? We'll come in, I'll sit down with you and with your kiddo and we'll have a conversation about it and then we can make a decision at that point. What about, 988. I think mm -hmm. that's one of those numbers that I have just been like shouting, call 988, sure. yep. call 988. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, I interviewed Shanna Burgess from Johnson County Mental mm -hmm. Health. And, mm -hmm. and I love what she said about it. You don't have to wait until it's crisis right. enough. Mm -hmm. What does that mm -hmm. even mean? So, yeah. you know, if a person has no idea who to call, doesn't mm -hmm. have a, a mm -hmm. Dana Doll recommendation. Sure. Mm -hmm they could call 988. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They could call 988. You can talk to a lot of different people to get input and feedback. I think the key piece is we have to be willing to talk about it. Yes. We have to be willing to say, I, I have a question and, and be, be willing to ask that. But you can talk to your doctor. You can call your insurance company and get a list of providers. I will just say for people that do that, um, know that sometimes those lists take a while to get updated. And so you may get a list that has some, some providers that are either no longer in network or they've retired or that sort of thing. So it may require some patience with that piece, but it is a good resource. Um, you can talk with your pastor or other religious leaders. You can talk with teachers, school counselors. Uh, in some districts, I know they're not technically allowed to refer, um, but most of them will have a list of providers that, that they know of in the community. And then you can talk with friends. Uh, it's amazing once you are, are willing to open up about your, your mental health questions, yep. how many people say, well, yeah, I actually saw a counselor or I'm seeing a counselor and I had a really good experience yes. or I, I would recommend someone else or that sort of thing. Um, so again, the willingness to talk about it is so critical. Yes. And I know too, some school districts are starting to put social workers in their school. Yes. Because yes. the the counselors are overwhelmed mm, with yeah. their their normal work mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. add on top of it this mental health crisis and i yeah. think it's great that there's another uh, person mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in some buildings yeah absolutely they're contracting with private practitioners whether that be a social worker or a marriage and family therapist or a professional counselor and these are our private practitioners that actually go into the school setting in most situations and so it's not disruptive for the student they don't have to go anywhere uh, they oftentimes will have a private kind of removed area where they can go and meet with this person uh, and in some school districts that's paid for for a certain number of sessions and then at the end of those sessions, then the student and their family can decide, do they want to continue with the private practitioner in their private practice or have they met their goals? That sort of thing. So, yes, that is an excellent resource that I'm excited that a lot of school districts are providing now. I am, too. And I, I don't have any idea if, those, if they're being utilized. I'm mm -hmm. going to guess mm -hmm. they probably they are. are. Yep, absolutely. They are. Mm -hmm. Which is good. The mm -hmm. kids are going to them. They know mm -hmm. about these professionals that are in their buildings mm -hmm. and then they're going to see them. That, that is really good. Yeah. And they're introducing their friends to them too. I, well, <laughs> I, I have better. some colleagues that have done this work and they'll talk about, yeah, I had a client come up in the hallway and bring a friend and say, Hey, this is my therapist. You need to talk to them. <laughs> yeah. So to your point earlier, I think our adolescents and our teenagers are doing a much better job of, of kind of eliminating or minimizing that stigma that yes. is usually associated with mental health conversations. For sure. Mm -hmm. 
We talked a little bit about self-care already, mm -hmm. but what would be some other strategies you would give parents um, who have a child who's really struggling in terms of coping you know, with this big thing, because yeah. it is a big thing. Absolutely, it is. And it impacts so much of our life. Yes. And so I want to just first start off uh, re-emphasizing the curiosity and the empathy. Uh, I tell parents sometimes when they come in my office, if you remember nothing else from today's session, please remember these two words, <laughs> mm -hmm. curiosity and empathy. And, and again, part of that is being able to suspend our adult judgment, because when we're listening to an adolescent talk about whatever they're talking about, it's so easy for us as adults, and I loop myself in that as well, to, to hear that story and, and think about it through our adult lens and think about, oh, honey, <laughs> this you're saying this is so terrible. Let me tell you what terrible actually looks like. And that is so not helpful. Um, yeah. It is well-intentioned. Like I, I always believe that parents are trying to soothe and comfort when they say those things, but what it actually ends up doing is invalidating and communicating to the adolescent or the child, your experience really doesn't matter to me. I'm mm -hmm. going to tell you about mine because that's really more important. Mm -hmm. And so when parents can talk with their, their children and adolescents with true curiosity, I want to know your experience and empathy. I want to understand your experience and I want to understand it without my judgment on it that goes a long way. So if, again, if parents remember nothing from this podcast, <laughs> yeah. remember curiosity and empathy. Uh, I think it's also helpful to think about this idea of what was it like for us as adolescents? Because we've all been adolescents before and we've all had different experiences, some more positive than others. But if we can get into that mindset of what were some of the things that I did as an adolescent? What were some of the things that I wanted to do as an adolescent? It helps us have more compassion as we're approaching our adolescents, whether it's our child or someone else. I think it's helpful for parents to consider this idea of 10,000 foot parenting. And what I mean by that is keeping the big picture of what is my goal for my child. And, you know, we have lots of goals for our kids. Yes. We want our kids to be happy. We want our kids to be successful in school and sports and their uh, eventual career. But I think the overarching goal of parenting needs to be to help empower our kids to when they leave our home, not just survive, but to thrive. Mm. And so thinking about what are all those skills that my kiddo needs to have to do that? And as we think about that 10,000 foot view, if we'll keep that in mind, it will help us as we're parenting our kids day to day. So things like emotional literacy, uh, making sure that we help our kiddos be able to identify what emotions am I experiencing and then be able to articulate those in a way that, that people can hear yes. and then also have the ability to soothe and to regulate those emotions for themselves because all humans have to be able to yes. do those things. And it's not something that we're just naturally born knowing how to do. Right. So making emotional content part of your regular daily conversation can be really helpful. Um, we joke at my house, I'm a counselor, <laughs> obviously, and um, sometimes my husband and children like that, and sometimes they absolutely do not, <laughs> sure. and that's okay. <laughs> but one of the things that I force my family members to do is what I call three feelings. And just at the end of the day, as we're kind of winding down, getting ready for bed, I'll just say, hey, Trevor, hey, TJ, hey, Kevin, what are three feelings that you had today? Uh, and I share as well. Um, and they reluctantly rolling their eyes share three <laughs> feelings. But for me, it's important that we have the not only the language to do that, but the ability to connect Oh, these things happen during the day. And here's how I felt and the safety in our family in which to share those things 
and again, to be able to hear each other and to understand and to know one another's experience with curiosity and empathy. So making that that emotional conversation really part of your daily experience. That's so good. Again, I'm going to say it. I wish I had heard this 25 years ago. Sure. Mm-hmm. I would have done mm-hmm. things so differently. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I hope that young parents are listening. Yeah. And yeah. Saying, oh, yes. I'm going to start incorporating this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. We had to learn it the hard way. Absolutely. And I think part of it is we are so much more aware of our beings as holistic beings. Mm. Like we're not just physical beings. We're not just mental beings. We're not just spiritual beings. We're not just whatever. We are all of these things together. And and I think sometimes we do a really good job of, of taking care of our physical being, but mm-hmm. not so much the other parts of ourselves. And so when we view ourselves holistically, then we're more cognizant of these areas. Mm. So good. And I love the, the 10,000 foot course this is not the first time I've heard this (laughs) (laughs) the 10,000 foot view because that does really put things in perspective Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. when when we need perspective yeah that kind of leads me into the next question that I have for you and I already sort of talked about it a little bit but I'm sure you have a, a variety of other tools that parents could give young children, you know, mm. besides what we were just talking about, mm-hmm. because those mm-hmm. are really important. Mm-hmm. But what are some other ways that parents can give young children the tools they need to be healthy mm-hmm. mental, mentally? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of that has to do with involving them in daily tasks from a very young age, because as we experience success in things, small things, then we develop more self-confidence in ourselves and the, the belief that we can do harder things. And when we're dealing with mental health stuff, that's hard things. It's really and, hard. And so when we learn as a child, I have the ability to do hard things. I can trust myself and the people around me, the important people in my life trust me as well. And I can trust them. It gives a sense of, of ability and powerfulness as opposed to powerlessness Mm. when it comes to more difficult things in the future. So I'm even thinking like, having your kid help you as you make the bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can remember a personal time. I, I tend to be fairly OCD when it comes to making my bed. Like I, I know how I like it. And unfortunately that, that translated onto my children as well. <laughs> um, not that they make their beds that way, but I expected that their yes. bed would be, which meant I oftentimes did it. Yes. That Trevor, my younger son came in one time and he really, really wanted to help make the bed. And I'm like, okay, what can I do to give him something to do, but that won't drive me crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> with my OCD about the bed. So I gave him the pillow and the pillowcase and I said, here, put the pillowcase on the pillow. And that little boy wrestled with that thing. I had made the entire bed in the time that it took him to put that pillowcase Mm -hmm. on. But the smile on his face and the sense of accomplishment was priceless. And he ran into his brother room, TJ, TJ, I did it. I did it. And it's such a small thing, but that's just one example of how we can empower our kids to believe in themselves and to believe that they have the ability to do things that at first might seem really, really hard. So I would encourage parents to find ways to incorporate that into daily living with their younger kid, Um, whether it's making the bed, folding towels, 
um, putting away dishes out of the dishwasher, maybe even loading the dishwasher with parental help, depending mm -hmm. on the age of the child, setting the table, clearing the table, sweeping the floor. There are so many things um, that kiddos can do. I, I have some friends, they were over at our house one time, and their little girl took a washcloth and put some water on it and was just washing my windows, so to speak. Oh, like she wasn't yeah. truly washing it, but she was confident that she was washing my windows. Yes. It was precious, mm. and that is an example of her believing I have something that I can do and I can contribute to this household and that is something I would so do differently mm -hmm. not that I but you know like I would too honestly uh, yep uh -huh. as a mom I'm like you know I want this to be just like this 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 mm -hmm. and clean and straight and, and I sometimes would... it's just easier for me to do it exactly <laughs> because I don't want to wait the 25 minutes for mm -hmm. you to put the pillow in yep. the pillowcase yeah absolutely but that's really good okay mm -hmm. what anything else for parents with young kids any other great little tidbits besides the things that you've already mentioned? Um, let's see. I would say helping children and adolescents to learn uh, how to identify and focus on things that they can control as opposed to things mm. that they can't control. This is really the foundation for emotional and relational boundaries as they grow up. Being able to recognize what's my responsibility and what is not my responsibility. Uh, and, and there are so many ways that that shows up. And so I don't have a checklist of, you know, if you'll do these things, then your kids will have sure. good emotional and relational boundaries um, but just in daily conversation when when you might hear your child talking about maybe somebody else's behavior and how angry they are about what their sibling did or something like that being able to have a conversation with them about I understand that was really upsetting to you that's empathy and can we talk about what you can do in a situation like that that's empowerment. Again, wish I'd have heard this 25 years ago, but hopefully there are some some younger parents who are listening and can use these tidbits. And I feel like the things that I have learned mm -hmm. over the last five and a half years, I, my kids are adults now, mm -hmm. but I feel like I can, I'm doing a little bit better job. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Of parenting that, you know, yeah. sometimes when they call me as young adults, mm -hmm. And they want to tell me about their bad day. They don't want me to fix it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you and I both wish that we had known some of these things when sure. our kids were younger. I think we both would have done some things differently. However, it is never too late to implement these things. It is never too late to change the way you relate yeah. to and interact with your kiddos. Um, as long as you still have relationship with them, you yes. can always do things differently. Yes. That's that's so key. All right. So anything else in that in that arena before we kind of switch gears a little bit? I think we can switch gears. OK. Yep. So I want to talk about the provider shortage mm. that is happening. Mm. I cannot tell you how many parents call me and we have experienced it ourselves mm -hmm. with Will in Virginia not being able to find a therapist mm -hmm. because everyone is full. Sure. Mm -hmm. They have waiting mm -hmm. lists. Sometimes they don't even call you back mm -hmm. because they don't have time. They're, yeah. they're overwhelmed as well. Mm -hmm. What's going on and what do we do about this? Yeah, I wish I had a good answer to that. Um, other than, yes, COVID, COVID kind of wreaked havoc um, on the mental health profession. It's like it did everything else yeah. um, because we were all impacted in the same way sure. um, to varying degrees, but we all experienced it. So I think we're still in this space of trying to get caught up, so to speak. Uh, but I, I hear and I understand that frustration, especially if, if it, you've 
mustered up the courage to make that phone call mm. and, and you're ready to say, hey, I need some help. Or maybe you're in crisis and you're saying, I desperately need some help. And to hear, I'm sorry, I don't have any openings. Um, I would encourage parents in that situation to ask the follow-up question, do you have anyone that you would refer me to? Because most of us would say, yes, absolutely. Like, I don't have space on my schedule right now, but I know so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Um, and so give them those referrals. And then the parents can follow up with those people as well. I think I'll just put a plug out for my mental health peers, my, my professional peers as well. Uh, it's really helpful for us to compile lists mm -hmm. of people and, and to actually be calling. Hey, are you taking new clients right now? Hey, do you have opening and availability right now? So that when we have to say to a potential prospective client, I'm sorry, I don't have space in my schedule right now, but I know so-and-so in the other part of the city does. So let me give you their information. So That's I'll just helpful. encourage my colleagues yes, super <laughs> in that helpful. way. Yeah, but I, I would say sometimes it just takes persistence. Mm -hmm. And knowing if, you, if there truly is a crisis, the ER is probably going to be your best bet. Because once you're plugged in with the ER, then they have more resources and more networking that they can do to help get other resources. Um, but if you're just looking for the outpatient type of therapy, it, it might take some persistence on that. Okay. And you might also need to be willing to work with someone who doesn't necessarily have as much experience mm -hmm. as, say, myself. Um for example, um, there are a lot of um, graduate training programs around here who have interns that are doing their uh, practicum hours, internship hours, and placement sites around the city. I actually really advocate for people to work with interns because, first of all, you are not just getting the experience and knowledge of your intern, but you're also getting the knowledge and experience of their supervisor. All graduate interns in counseling, marriage and family therapy, social work, that sort of thing, have to do a practicum and internship experience that is supervised. And those supervisors have a lot more training and experience and that sort of thing than the student, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so for typically a reduced cost, yes. the client is getting the benefit of two clinicians for the cost of one. So wow. if there's the opportunity to work with an intern, I strongly advocate for that. How does a person go about finding an intern or a, a student? Like mm -hmm. I wouldn't even know where to go to find that out. Sure, absolutely. Some practices will actually put their interns on their website. So if you go to a practices website and you're scrolling and it says counseling intern, that would be one way. If if you don't happen upon a website that has something like that, you can call one of the graduate programs in the area. So in the Kansas City area, we've got UMKC, um, we've got Friends University, we've got Mid-American Nazarene University. There are several others as well in the area. Uh, and so you can call those graduate programs and say, where are your interns placed at? Mm -hmm. And then you can contact those organizations. That's a great, great idea and a great resource. And I think actually that's probably who Will is meeting with right oh, now sure. mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. at his school because he said, oh, I think she's getting her master's. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, perfect. And, yeah. and I, I interviewed the dean of uh, students at Rockhurst University mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and, and they are utilizing... Mm -hmm. um, some graduate students as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great resource. It really is. Okay, so you also brought up the the money piece, and sure. I'm glad you did because mm -hmm. that is such a big deal. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so many providers don't accept insurance, mm -hmm. and I understand mm -hmm. why because yeah. it, it's a pain. <laughs> it doesn't cover a whole lot, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
Um, or you go on to your insurance website and it gives you, you know, the list and mm. every single person you call says, oh, I'm not taking patients or no, I'm not mm. on that insurance anymore, like you said, because they're yeah. often out of date. Mm-hmm. What do people do? And there's so many of us who, who cannot afford to pay out sure. of pocket for this mm-hmm. kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. What do yeah. we do about that? Yeah, absolutely. That is a valid question. Um, first of all, the interns is a good option mm-hmm. because they, they are, are typically at a reduced price. There are also some providers in private practice who will do a sliding scale fee or an income-based fee. There are also a lot of practitioners who will have a certain percentage of their caseload or a certain number of clients on their caseload at any given time that they're seeing at a reduced fee. Uh, and sometimes practitioners will do scheduling so that maybe you're not coming every week, but maybe you're coming every other week. And so it's a little bit more feasible within the client's budget. I would encourage potential clients to just ask about that and to be really upfront and say, I'm not sure that I can afford this every week. Do you work with clients around that? I know some practitioners will give a military discount or Mm. will give a healthcare provider discount or an educator discount. And so it's just a matter of asking. Mm -hmm. The worst they can do is say, no, I don't offer Mm -hmm. any of those discounts or I don't do that. Let me offer you a referral to somebody who does. Uh, But if the, the potential client doesn't ask, then they're probably not going to bring that up. The practitioner isn't going to know that this is a concern. Sure. I have heard some ads on podcasts, Mm -hmm. actually, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't remember the names, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. there there are now some websites or Mm -hmm. whatever that you Mm -hmm. are are saying, oh, we're offering therapy. You can do online therapy, and it's a lot Mm -hmm. cheaper Mm -hmm. than what – do you have any thoughts about that type of a resource? Mm -hmm. I would just encourage potential or prospective clients to vet those services well, um, to – be a good consumer to mm-hmm. ask what are the qualifications of the therapists that are providing services? Uh, what are the licensure requirements? Because even like I know for, for Kansas, like my license says the client that I'm seeing has to be in Kansas. Yeah, so, so we don't really like that, yeah. but it is the way it <laughs> I is. I know. It is. It's very challenging <laughs> and, it, and it is very hard for people like Will who yeah. move for school or for a job relocation right. and they have a really good connection with their therapist and the therapist has to say, I'm really sorry I can't see you in that new state. So it it is unfortunate. And there is actually, it's called the Counselor or Counseling Compact that is in process in the United States. And there's several states who are working on kind of reciprocal relationships Mm. so that if you are in a member of the compact state and you're in good standing, then you can see clients in other member states as well. Um, It's not very widespread yet, but I am hoping that that will become more of the norm in the United States. That is really challenging when, when you have to move and that sort of thing. I would just encourage clients or prospective clients to vet them, to ask good questions. Uh, And then ultimately, it's about, is it a good fit for you? Uh, For some clients, the online venue is ideal, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a convenience thing or whether they have significant anxiety. And so it's really literally too much for them to leave their house to go to a counselor's Mm -hmm. office. And at the same time, there are some limitations to online therapy. There is so much, whenever I'm meeting with a client online, I can't see their whole body. And there's so much that happens in the clinical space that is nonverbal. Yes. And that all gets lost when you're online with someone. So there's definitely pros and there's definitely downsides mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. What about, um, I know like in our area, we have Johnson County Mental Health. That's mm-hmm. our county 
uh, funded mental health provider. Mm -hmm. And I know they have multiple therapists or Mm -hmm. clinicians uh, who see clients and often on a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. Yep. Of course, we're very fortunate here in Johnson County that I think we do have a really good county mental health program. Mm -hmm. Again, not always the case everywhere. And I want to be clear Mm -hmm. about that. But Mm -hmm. what would you say to that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you that we are very fortunate and we do have a very good county run mental health program here in our area. Um, it goes back to all you can do is ask and mm-hmm. and check into it and see. So if you're in another area where you're not familiar with your county services, um, maybe you don't have county services, but you can always ask and a good place to start is your physician mm. uh, because they will know more of those uh, medical resources, but also along with that comes the mental health resources. So um, I like to refer people back to their physician just as a starting point. Mm-hmm. And if your physician says, I really don't know the answer to that, Another good follow-up question for the the client or the patient is, who could I ask? Mm -hmm. Who would you recommend that I ask that question to? That's good. That's really good. Don't give up. (laughs) And I think, I mean, I have said that so many times, Mm -hmm. you know, like what we as parents often have to do, Mm -hmm. you know, for the well-being of our children. And and again, sometimes it's a life and death kind of situation, Mm -hmm. like where Mm -hmm. Will slept on our floor. Right. That was, you know, a choice that we made because we wanted to make sure that he was still with us the Mm -hmm. next morning. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it it just goes the same way with trying to find help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just don't give up. Right. Absolutely. And I just thought of one other resource that I use sometimes. Um, There's an organization, and I I may butcher the name, um, but I believe it's Apria Healthcare. And they they do a lot of different things, but they also have these mental health liaisons Mm. uh, who it's their job to help patients and clients get connected with resources. And whether it's an actual APRIA uh, center or program or not, they have a wealth of resources. And so there have been times when I have said to a client, I don't know what options are available. Let me call this this person, the representative from, from APRIA, and then I will see what they say. Um, Or my patient or my client can call them directly and get information as well. So there are resources like that out Mm. there. But again, it just requires asking. Sure. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes a lot of legwork on on a parent end and patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) which I think we're going to come full circle to Mm -hmm. self-care and support is Mm -hmm. so important as you're going through that process, because as you know, it is exhausting. And and as you're trying to navigate caring for your child or your adolescent who is struggling with their mental health and your job and your parenting and other responsibilities, it's so easy for the parent to get lost in all of that. And and you can't pour from from an empty cup Mm. to use a really old saying um but it is it is so true you have to be supported you have to be filled up in order to be able to do all these things Mm, that's really good dana is there anything that i haven't asked you that you would like to convey I want to just reinforce this idea of not giving up. I know we literally just talked about it, but I think that that's where I'm noticing my passion really welling Mm. up of um, like, I know I am a finite person and I cannot be the right uh, counselor for every client. And I would say that about all other clinicians as well. 
but it is so important that parents don't give up, that they stay engaged with their kiddos, that they are asking questions, that they are seeking resources, that they're caring for themselves because your kiddos need you mm-hmm. um, and, and you're, you have other people in your life that need you. And so it's so important that you keep going. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. hard. Yep, it is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I hope that parents know that they're not alone absolutely and that Mm -hmm. there's hope Mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to work really hard to find that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I I appreciate your encouragement Mm -hmm. to just keep keep working on it yep absolutely keep asking questions keep seeking things out Mm -hmm. great Mm -hmm. Dana thanks again it's just awesome to to have you sitting here with me Mm -hmm. and and what you have shared uh, on this podcast, I, I have no doubt that there are going to be people who hear this and now they feel more empowered mm-hmm. uh, to find the right help or they feel more empowered to ask the questions mm-hmm. to their kids. So yeah. thank you. I sure sharing, hope so. Yeah. For sharing your incredible knowledge and expertise. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me, Susie. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been awesome having Dana Dahl on this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. <laughs> If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Once you smile again, take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. Once you smile again, take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.